Good everyone. Happy Sabbath, everyone. Great uh, Pentecost celebration we had last week. It's nice to see everybody together. Certainly looking forward to the next time we're all together at Trumpets. Today is... Anyone notice the full moon last night? Everyone was all... Uh, Mesmerized by a full, by a full moon on Friday the thirteenth, uh, we should have noticed it was a full moon, and we're four months from the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what should have crossed our mind. So today is the sixteenth day of the third month. We're well along uh, this month. There's nothing like a good love story. Most women, when they need a good cry will watch a good love story. Perhaps it's just my wife, maybe not most women. <laughs> most guys will never admit publicly to it, but probably privately agree. A popular bookstore blog site recently ran down their list of the greatest love stories of all time, as voted by their readers. These are books, not movies these paper things we used to read before technology came and put everything on to these sorts of things. See if you agree. Number 10 was Gone with the Wind. How many of you, as, you, as we proceed down here, take note if, if you actually have read these. Number 9 is The Great Gatsby. Number 8 is called Atonement. Number seven, a classic called Wuthering Heights. Number six, I unfortunately have to say, is Brokeback Mountain. Number five, The Time Traveler's Wife. Number four, Romeo and Juliet. Number three, which I've read and love, The Notebook. Number two, Jane Eyre. And number one, Pride and Prejudice. Last week when I gave this in Burlington, there was some feedback afterwards, and Casablanca probably should have been thrown in for Brokeback Mountain, I think. That was the, that was the conclusion. One of the Bible's greatest love stories is a book that is typically read at this time of year. We're less than a week removed from the Feast of Pentecost, and typically... The Jewish people read this book in the lead-up to Pentecost. We are certainly still within the springtime. Uh, spring does not start for another week here in this part of the world. Summer, sorry. We're still in spring. And summer does not uh, start until the 21st. Thank you. And the harvest backdrop of the book of Ruth accounts for part of the reason why the Jews read it at this time of year. The other reason is that Ruth is not an Israelite. The theme of redemption, the harvest of the first fruits, and the coming of the Holy Spirit that would be made available to all people make this a thematic book to review at this time of year within the week removed from Pentecost. So this afternoon what I would like to do is study the book of Ruth. However, we're going to do it just a little bit different this time. It's not going to be a study of the love story. It's actually going to be a study of how God's law was used, was followed and obeyed by Boaz and Ruth. And it's going to be very interesting in looking at this book and studying through this book as we glean the, the harvest message and the theme of redemption in relation to how tight and how close Boaz and Ruth followed God's law. And this will be an interesting study as we just came through Pentecost, commemorating not only the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the New Testament church, but several centuries before the coming of God's law on the stone tablets. She was a Moabite woman, as Javon read from that account, who, in support of her widowed mother-in-law, became a follower of the God of Israel, and in turn was redeemed by the very well-to-do Boaz, and in turn took her rather odd place in the lineage of Jesus Christ. 
So again, this study will not be a comprehensive one. We're not going to be going systematically through the book of Ruth to just read it for reading's sake. But we're going to be tapping into the various aspects of what Boaz and Ruth did in relation to how tight and how close they followed the law of God as they knew it to be. So before we start, let's get into the setting and the backdrop. Let's go back to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. And let's just pick up some important aspects before we begin our study. And understanding the setting will help us develop this theme that we're going to look at today. So Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 is where we'll begin. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. There's a lot of information in there. First and foremost, we see that Ruth was a Moabite. Who were the Moabites? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 19. This is important to understand who the Moabites were and how important Ruth's placing in the lineage of Christ becomes based on the fact that she was a Moabite. Genesis chapter 19 takes us to the time in history when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. It was referred to in the sermonette by Brother Louis about Abraham bargaining with God. We'll pick it up in verse 30. We've just proceeded through Lot and his family departing Sodom and his wife failing to heed that very important condition that God said, do not look back, do not turn back. And she did and became a pillar of salt. So they lost their wife and their mother, Lot and his two daughters. Verse 30 says, Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two sons and his two daughters were with him. For he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now keep in mind that in this time of history, it was, very, it was a very patriarchal society. Lineage was important. Sonship was important. Having, having a, a descendant through whom you pass on your name and your lineage was critical and crucial to their well-being, to their feeling of, of satisfaction and, and a life well-lived. Verse 31, we continue. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And it happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day, says the writer. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. Imagine that. Imagine taking it upon yourself this way to fulfill what you thought was your God-given right to bear children and do it this way. But thus, the people of Moab were born out of this grievous, grievous sin. 
of these two daughters. So those are who the Moabites were. So concerned with their lineage that they took it upon themselves to have a son by their father. We move forward in time to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy 23. Long past the exodus of Israel from bondage in Egypt. Proceeding through the nations. Their long course of 40 years of wandering. They happened to be in the area of Moab just before they crossed the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. As we proceed through the book of Deuteronomy, which was of course the second giving of the law to the second generation before God allowed them their entrance into the promised land. And we see, pick it up in verse 3. God, through Moses, commanding that an Ammonite or a Moabite, those two brothers, Ammon and Moab, the descendants of those two brothers, shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they, they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pothar of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. So two reasons were given. They did not offer food and, and water to the Israelites as they were passing through. And they tried to hire this prophet to bring Israel down. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 22. This is where this story takes place. We will not take time to read it. But just to reference it for you so you know why... God was very adamant that for ten generations, the families of these two brothers were, would never be allowed in the assembly of the Lord. And you can read on your own time the account of Numbers 22, 23, and 24, where Balak, the king of Midian, I believe, brought in the, the, the uh, Balaam, the prophet, to try to bring down the Israelites. And we, we go to the end of the story in chapter 25 to see the impact of being in this area of Moab and not completely having your mind focused on God and following His laws. Verse 1, Now Israel remained, at the end of all of this, they remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to go to the sacrifices of their God, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. So here, Israel, again, camped in Moab. Their king tried to enlist Balaam to destroy Israel after hearing that the Amorite city of Heshbon was defeated by Israel. So out of fear, they tried to engage the supernatural to work against Israel. And we see that amongst all of this, Israel did what they continue to do, and that is get involved in the harlotry that they were told to avoid, which allowed these foreign gods to infiltrate their minds. So they were banned from assembling with Israel until the 10th generation. Let's go to Luke chapter 3. We see why. It's very obvious why God would ban them based on the stories that we just referred to and read. But let's go to Luke chapter 3 and see how very precise God is. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And we see here... Starting at verse 23, the genealogy of Christ through Mary. The account in Matthew describes the genealogy through Joseph, genealogy of Christ through Joseph. Here we see the genealogy of Christ through Mary. Let's go down to verse 32. 
And rather than verse 32 to 34, we're actually going to read verse 34 to 32. The son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, the son of Judah, the son of Perez, the son of Hezron, the son of Ram, the son of Amadinadab, the son of Nashon, the son of Simon, the son of Boaz, the son of Obed. So we see there, we know that Lot was Abraham's nephew. You can pick that up to count back in the early parts of Genesis where we already were. So he would have been a cousin of Isaac's. So on that assumption, which is a relatively safe assumption, because the genealogies in Scripture do not refer to Lot's descendants, they refer to the covenant through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But based on that assumption and that knowledge, that Lot would have been a cousin of Isaac, we start with Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz. Tenth generation. Tenth generation from Lot to Boaz. And we see why a lady like Ruth was now allowed back into the assembly, which we will see later. So amazing how precise God is with what he had said and what he allowed to do, allowed to happen. Matthew chapter 1. So after ten generations, it is possible and providential that the people of Moab would have been allowed to come into the assembly of God. Matthew chapter 1. We pick up Ruth's connection in the lineage of Jesus Christ as we continue to set the background, set the setting, set the characters here in the story of Ruth. And we pick it up again in verse 2. The same names, because the lineage does not split off for Joseph and Mary at this point. It's, they come from the same, at this point, the same line. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah. Judah begot Perez. And Zerah by Tamar. Now we'll, we'll notice a few ladies' names. We'll pick that up at the end of the message. I'd like to come back and touch on that. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab begot Nashon. Now if we stop there with Nashon, Nashon, if, we, if you go back and look at the account in Numbers, was the leader that was chosen from the, Ju- from the tribe of Judah at the end of the 40 years as they were selecting a leader from each tribe as they were going into the, the promised land. The word Nashon you can pick up at the end of the, the book of Numbers and see that this lines up precisely with about the time uh, of the lineage here. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot the king of David, the David the king. So we see Ruth's place in the lineage of Jesus Christ, David from Abraham down through David and into Jesus Christ. She gets special mention here, but again, we're going to come back to this later at the end of the message. But it is part of the overall importance of setting this backdrop. How Moab began, God's punishment of the entire line, followed by the redemption of Ruth at the specific time when the punishment was lifted, concluding with her place in the line of Jesus Christ. This was a very special woman. Let's go back to chapter 1 of Ruth, and we'll pick up one other tidbit as we set the backdrop and the setting here in Ruth chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. Often when we read, we skip over this to get to the meat of the message. There is a lot in that single sentence. There is a lot of information in that phrase. In the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. 
This is the key to where we now launch our study of the book of Ruth from this very sentence. And the specific angle in noting God's law at play in throughout the story. David was the third king of Israel. He was also the great-grandson of Boaz and Ruth. Obed, Jesse, David. We saw that when we read the lineage. So this would have clearly been near the end of the period of the judges, based on that reference period. Remember what happened at the end of the book of Judges. Go back probably one page. You probably just flip a page over to the end of the book of Judges, chapter 21, and we see the theme and the message from the entire book listed for us in the very last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. For these more than 330 years, God's people were on this vicious cycle. And if you want to go through all of the judges and the story of the ups and downs, you can remember it through this acronym, the acronym ABCD, if you go through and study the book of Judges. We have God's group of people, and they become apostate. They take on a sinful nature, completely disobeying God's law. That word apostate, beginning with A. Then... We grab the word battery because God, through his punishment to try to get through to his people of Israel, batters them to the point where they realize they're sinning. As they come through that period of battering, they start to cry out to God for forgiveness and for help. And then he uses a judge to deliver them. Apostasy, battering, crying out, and deliverance. And it was a repeated cycle throughout the entire period of the judges. So the story of Ruth takes place during a time when God's people were not known for their shining obedience to Him. And note, back in Ruth, that there was a famine in the land. That clearly smacks of battering, of the time when God was trying to bring them, bring their minds around to the fact that they were in a very sinful state. This would have been before a judge would have been in place to help deliver them out of this time of punishment, because famine throughout the Old Testament times, and, and we could argue through to today, has been and could be used as a form of punishment. And it is clear here that it is, it, is, it is significant when it is pointed out in, setting, in the setting here of Ruth that it was during a time when the judges ruled when we see God, God's, the pen of God himself saying everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So they were a, a, a sinful lot. And it was a time that there was a famine in the land. So God was trying to bring them about out of this period of apostate and sinfulness to try to get their minds back on him. So with that setting in mind, we are in a time and a period when most people of God were not doing right, when they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And now we come upon the story of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. And we start in verse 6 of chapter 1. And we see now God's laws on display. Were Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi, and the entire cast of the story of Ruth, would they be part of this apostate group that was sitting and doing things, doing what was right in their own eyes? Or would they be following God's laws? Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law were with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. 
But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that you may, that may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, and go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and you and should also bear sons, would you wait for them to be grown? What we see here, amongst all of this fine story, is that death releases the widowed party from obligation. Naomi was followed by her daughters-in-law. And when she got home, she turned to them and said, Go back to your people. You're no longer obligated to, to, to be with me. And that is, in fact, a law that we find. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. Death releases the widowed party from obligation to the marriage covenant. Genesis chapter 2. When we counsel for marriage, when we perform a marriage ceremony, we often go to this verse. And I'll use it as a backdrop to going to, to the law. Therefore, God says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is a, the key part of the marriage covenant. They shall become one flesh. There are now not two people, but two individuals who have become one. When we go forward to Romans chapter 7, now odd that we're going to Romans chapter 7 to check on the law, but remember what Paul says that he about being such a keen student of the law. He knew the law. That's why he was able to teach it. That was why he was able to to the Gentiles, take the church in a, in, in a break outside of the box that the Jewish people had, had built around God's law. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law. Puts that in parentheses because he was, he was a sharp legal mind. We know Paul to be that. That the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. The law only bound someone to their partner while they were alive. Paul knew the law inside and out. Naomi, as a... Hebrew woman, as an Israelite, knew that once her husband died, once her sons died, that Orpah and Ruth were not bound to the family. They could go back. And she offered them that option, to go back to Moab, be with your family. You're no longer connected here. You can have a life back home. You've served our family well for the years that you were with us but you're no longer bound. So don't feel obligated to follow me to Israel and stay. It's okay to go home. When we go back to Ruth, we notice in chapter 1 that we've already read the verse in verse 8 that talks about may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. This word deal kindly is also part of the covenant. It's the Hebrew words asah Kassed, interestingly enough, for those of you who know the Licorice family from Ottawa, their oldest son is named Kassed. This is where they would have gotten this from this loyalty, this word for uh, covenant or loyal covenant. And it refers to a loyal covenant or a commitment that is not required, but freely given. And here we see this initial connection to the covenant of God and this covenant of redemption through Jesus Christ and this foreshadowing of his act of redemption. But it is often used, this Asaka said, this deal kindly, or often translated in other English words, but Asaka said, is used often in the Old Testament to describe God himself. But here Naomi, because of her knowledge of Israelite law, God's law, is releasing her daughters-in-law from obligation because her husband and her sons are dead and there is no longer a need for this obligation. Verse 12 we read, Turn back my daughters and go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them until they were grown? 
Here's a reference to another law. We're going to put that on the shelf and come back to that in a few minutes. But there is a reference to another law that we're going to look at here. Let's drop down to verse 14 and continue on and look at a second law on display. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, and this is what makes, this is the, the highlight of the story of Ruth that makes it such a good love story. And treat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death departs you from me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking with her. Again, we read little sentences like this, but let's dig a little deeper into God's law and see as God writes His Scripture through His servants, every sentence means something, and every sentence is there for a reason. Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. We read that Naomi simply relented and stopped pushing. We can, read, we can take that to mean, I'm not going to argue with her anymore. Fine, just stay. But, let's look here. Leviticus 19. Verse 33. And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Several places, the law deals with the presence of strangers. But note the specific use of the word dwells, or sojourns, as the King James would have it. This does not mean a simple passing through, but an actual long-term dwelling. Let's go to Exodus chapter 12 to continue this thought. Exodus chapter 12. And we'll see in verse 43, Exodus chapter 12. What I'd like to notice here is the difference between the word foreigner and the word sojourner. Because they are two separate Hebrew words. Two separate Hebrew words. And it's an important distinction to make. Exodus 12 verse 43 talking about the regulations and the, the rules of Passover. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. Simple, to the point, no foreigner shall eat it. This word foreigner is the word nekar, N-E-K-A-R, and it denotes a heathen, and one who specifically worships other gods. And this is important. They, those who worship other gods... They are not allowed to partake of the Passover. They are not allowed to be part of the assembly. But, verse 44, Every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. There shall be one law shall be for the native-born and for the strangers who dwell with you. This word sojourner or stranger is the word ger. And it, is mean, it means one who dwells within, but has no inheritance of rights. But, if they commit to being an Israelite completely, which God is clear through here, then let him eat. But he must commit to being an Israelite. He must commit to following the laws of God. 
If you're a heathen and a foreigner and want nothing to do with this, but want to bring your gods in here, you can't be here. You can't partake of the Passover. You can't be part of us. But regardless of who you were, if you're not an Israelite, if you have no Israelite blood, but you come amongst us and you find yourself sojourning with us and you develop a love for the people and you develop a love for this God that they, they serve and you want to follow this God completely and wholly, welcome. Not from Christ, from the period of Moses. This was in the law. If they want to be part of this and they want to do it completely and wholly, welcome them in. And in that case, there is one law, and it applies to the native-born and to the sojourner when this is the case. So let's go back to Ruth and see, because it has always been about obedience to God's law. This doesn't replace the grace with which we receive God's gifts. But once we have this grace, there is an... A, there is a, a, a need for us and a, a want for us to follow God's law. Last week during his, his sermon on Pentecost, Pastor Ramakan noted that you cannot be a Christian and not obey the laws of God. You simply can't. You don't become a Christian because you obey the laws of God. But once you are a, a Christian and you have committed to this, you obey. Because that is this way of life. It doesn't. It, it's not going to earn this way of life. It just is your way of life. And the two can't be separated. If you are a Christian, you follow the laws of God. Because that is the way of life. They are vital to a Christian, he said. So, noting these rules that we just read. That if a, stray, a sojourner comes among you and follows God completely, and desires to follow God... Let him be amongst us. So now when we read this and we see Ruth saying, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. And wherever you go, I will go. Whatever you do, I will do. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. This is completely giving up her way of life. This is completely giving up anything Moabite that she would cling to. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord, not your Lord, not a Lord, the Lord, do to me also and more, if anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking with her. Why? Because the law said this makes her an Israelite. She's an Israelite. She is committed to this way of life. So who is Naomi to try to argue against that? And Naomi backed off. Not because Ruth was annoying her, and just, you know what, let's make her stop talking. But because the law said, she's an Israelite now. She's got no blood in her, but she's an Israelite. Because the law says so. Chapter 2. Again, I told you we're not going to go through systematically here. Let's skip down to chapter 2. And in verse 1. There's a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. And his name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabites said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. We see here this talk of she was she asked to go glean in the fields of Boaz. Let's go to Leviticus 19. You probably are aware that this is a law, but let's go look and, make, and see that it is actually there. Hold your place in Ruth and go to Leviticus 19. This was God's a law that allowed for God's mercy to be on display. Leviticus chapter 19. Talking to the Israelites as they were... In the second or third month, having left Egypt and learning God's ways, verse, 19, verse 9 of chapter 19, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your, grape, your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. Note that those two words again. The poor would have been the native-born poor. And the stranger, because that ger, the stranger that was was a lot, what, what, that wanted to be there and wanted to follow, they were allowed to, 
to glean of these fields, the corners of the fields, if they were an, if they were an Israelite at heart, if they had committed to being an Israelite. It wasn't just your native poor, but it was also the stranger that sojourned there and committed to this way of life. You can also, by reference, look at chapter 23 the, of Leviticus, where the, the, uh, the festivals are noted, and in verse 22 it talks about this as well. And in fact, in fact, those two verses are nearly verbatim. So we go back to Ruth and see her request to, Please let me go into the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find favor. It shows her understanding of God's law. Not that just not just that God's law was on was in, in action here, because Boaz let it happen. Boaz did not. He followed God's law precisely, and there were corners to glean. But it also showed Ruth's knowledge of the law. Not just her mother telling her, but Ruth, because of her committed way of life that we saw on display in the previous chapter, Ruth knew the law. And Ruth knew it was her right as an Israelite, which she now was, to glean these corners of the fields because they were now poor. Their, their husbands were dead. They now had to find and make a living on their own. And this shows her commitment to following the way of God. She didn't beg for food because God's way is not welfare. God's way is workfare. Where you can work, you will work. We'll be merciful and leave the corners of the fields, but you must come and get it. And Ruth knew God's law. Verse 15, let's skip down to verse 15 and note another law. For setting sake, let's look at verse 14. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grains to her, and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. Let's go to Deuteronomy 24. Holding the place there. Deuteronomy 24. So she even had the courage to glean from within the rows, not just kept to the outside, to the corners, but she went and gleaned within the rows. Boaz seemed quite generous to allow this to happen. But Deuteronomy 24, let's look in verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again, and it shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And when you gather the grapes of the vineyard, you shall not glean it afterwards. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. So don't just leave the corners of the field. But when you go through, once you pass, you're done. And you keep going. You don't turn back and try to retrieve what, what you might have found. Whatever you don't get on your first go through, that's it. You leave it. Interesting that Ruth knew she was allowed to do that. And that Boaz let it happen. Because Boaz knew, as a follower of the God of Israel, that this is what he was expected to do as a landowner. That when they go through, you get one crack through, and then that's what you get. And you leave the rest for the poor, the widow, and the fatherless. Because this was God's another of God's laws of mercy that he expected his people to follow. And interesting, again, that Ruth did the work. She went to work through and went to help her mother-in-law. 1 Timothy chapter 5. 
comes to mind when we read that. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Because God is merciful to His people. But when I first read this a number of years ago, I had to read it two or three times because I could not believe. I understand and accept it and believe it now. But I couldn't believe when I first came across this how many ever years ago it was. 1 Timothy 5, verse 3. Again, from the pen of the Apostle Paul, who was a very sharp legal mind. Honor widows, verse 3, who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. For this is good and acceptable before God. And then dropping down to verse 9, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, and if she has diligently followed every good work. Take care of the widows, but if you're a widow, you will have been expected to be productive when you can be productive. And if you have been productive while you could be productive, then God's mercy is open. Because God's mercy is not welfare, it is workfare. When we can be productive as children of God, we will be looked after. Naomi worked hard, and therefore Ruth was allowed to glean from the fields, the corners, and, the, and within the sheaves to look after her widowed mother. Ruth would have been under 60 and had to work for it herself because she could. It wasn't there for, for her to be looked after. She was at an age that she would have had to have worked it herself because she was able to. Naomi would have been older, would have proven to herself and proven to her family and the, and, and the surroundings that she was now worthy of this honor of being looked after. But it wasn't because she expected it. It was because she had put in the effort to work for it. Because God's, God's way is very systematic. And when you understand it, it makes complete sense. But there's expectations out of all of us. We will be looked after in our old age. But, by your children and family first, because that makes sense. And two, only if, you've, only if you've put in the time and the effort while you could. Go to the ant of sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Back to Ruth, chapter 1. We'll go back to verse 11 that we touched on and see another law that you're likely very familiar with. But Naomi said in verse 11, chapter 1, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that, there may, that they may be your husbands? Turn back my daughters and go, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, if today I meet a husband and I get pregnant and I have, let's say, twin sons, by the time they're of age to marry you, you're going to be too old for it. So go back, she says. Would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters. Let's drop down to chapter 2 and verse 20. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, verse 20 of chapter 2, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, and one of our close relatives. Is this just filler in a story to sort of describe the setting chapter 3 and verse 1 then Naomi her mother-in-law said to her my daughter shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you dropping down to verse 9 so she answered I am Ruth Let's go back to verse 2, sorry. Let's, uh, let, let's read the, the account. Now, Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. 
Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be, when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. And he will tell you what you should do. As she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drank, and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there was a woman lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, I will do all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be, that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. If he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. Deuteronomy chapter 25, holding your place here. And we go to what has become known as the Leverett Law. Leverett refers to brother. And this is the law, the, the, this, this interesting marriage duty of a surviving brother. Deuteronomy 25, we'll pick it up at verse 5. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duties of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. We see so many times the chronologies of, of, of the, the lineage throughout, starting in Genesis 5 and in the Chronicles and throughout Scripture. Lineage was important, as we stated earlier. This patriarchal society and your lineage to, uh, to your ancestors was was important. And here God provided that a dead man would not be eliminated from lineage, but could could continue on his lineage through the firstborn of his brother. Verse 7, But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to, t- to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. That was an insult. The house of him who had his sandal removed. You did not want to be known as one who had your sandal removed. But it allowed for someone to provide an heir to the lineage of a deceased relative. And we can understand why through the focus on chronology in Scripture. Interesting to know that Naomi and Ruth knew, Boaz knew of it, but he wasn't after this pretty young girl, Ruth. This was brought to him, and he said, you know what, I guess you're right. I am a close relative, and I'm obligated by this, but I know of one other person who's closer. So we'll let him, have, we'll let him be first, because we must. That, that's the law. The closest relative has first right of refusal. And if not, then I will do what is expected of me. So he wasn't, again, after this cute young thing named Ruth. This was something that he knew was obligated by law as a close relative. And he was, he was more than willing to follow this law. Chapter 4. We'll pick up in Ruth, chapter 4, verse 1. Boaz is now gone into town the next day. And he goes up to the gate in verse 1 and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And Boaz said, Come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city. 
and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And now we've got a little bit of wise like a serpent and harmless as a dove going on here. He didn't say there was Ruth. He said there's a piece of land that as the closest relative you have first right of refusal for this piece of land. And I thought, verse 4, to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, redeem the land. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and then I am next. So this is a beautiful piece of land. You have first right of refusal. I would like it, but you have first, first right of refusal. So let me know in front of all these elders, are you going to, to take it? And if not, I will do it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Oh, and by the way, there's a daughter involved <laughs> that you will now have to perpetuate the lineage of her, widowed, of her dead husband. And the close relative said, Nah, no. I can't redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. I've built up this great big empire and if I bring in another inheritance, I'm going to have to give some of it over to, and it won't even stay in my line. So you know what? Thank you, but no thank you. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. Now, verse 7. This was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming anything and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. We don't need to go back to Deuteronomy 25, verses 8 to 10, but this was the back half of that law. That if you're going to refuse it, there's an exchange of sandals here. But they followed the law to a T. They followed it. They knew the law, and they followed it. And the giving up of one's sandals, again likely referring to the giving up of the right to walk on one's land. So again, a transaction confirmed with the removal of one's sandals. Moving on to another law that is clear and in effect here. Through the story that we just read, go back to verse 2, chapter 4. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here, and they sat down. Dropping down to the end of the story. Verse 8, we'll pick up where we left off. The close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal, and Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are, you are witnesses, so he said to the elders and to the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chileans and Malons from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabites, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, and you may prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. We are witnesses. So Boaz, knowing that there was a transaction about to happen here, went and got ten elders to be witnesses. And he said, sit here and wait. And they did. There was no argument. They just sat and waited. And when it came through the procession, it got to the end. Well, I said, you are witnesses. And they said, yes, we are witnesses. We saw this and we affirmed that this is true. Deuteronomy chapter 19. Verse 15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. 
by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So well, this has to do with sin initially. The concept here is that by the, by the mouth and the affirmation of two or three witnesses, something is established. We don't establish anything on the witness of one. But if there are two or three, it will be established. Boaz was so intent that this was right, that, that there will be no arguments about this. He got ten, not two or three. He went and got ten elders of the city. Because if two or three will affirm, ten is a lock. There is, there is no question. The minute the, close relative, the closest relative says no, he will jump in, he will, he will uh, agree to this, and there are ten witnesses. Not two or three, but ten elders. Not ten people, not ten whoever they can pull off the street. Ten elders of the land. Because God's law provides for the establishment of something through witnesses. He wouldn't know that this would end up playing a vital part in the lineage of Jesus Christ. But, God was assured through the obedience of Boaz that everything was done above board and could never be brought into question. Back to Ruth chapter 4. Like any good novel, storylines are brought to a conclusion. Verse 13. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. You can see a movie here with the credits rolling at the end, with the writing of what happens, or the epilogue in a novel. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you... Now remember, going back to the genealogy and, and the chronologies, that it was a son that was important. Jacob was a success a successful patriarch because he had 12 sons. Your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is better to you than seven sons. Naomi was so blessed by Ruth that it was she was better to him than seven sons. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her bosom, and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. And he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. Naomi has been restored from bitterness to happiness. Her grandson is her close relative. And while sons were looked upon with desire due to the inheritance factor, Ruth became more valuable to her than seven sons. And the writer, thought to be Samuel, ties this lineage directly to King David. So what? What does that have to do with us? This is a beautiful story. An interesting angle that we took, rather than just reading it as a love story, we took it from an angle of God's law. So what? How does that, what does that have to do with us? We've just come through the Feast of Weeks, picturing the waiting of the Holy Spirit, leading up to the birth of the New Testament church, the giving of the Holy Spirit to the multitudes, Picturing back the coming of God's law on tablets centuries before. And we see how the Holy Spirit is linked to God's law through the story of Ruth. The desire for God's people to be more like Him is what we're all about. From Genesis 1.26 where it says we will be made after in His image, in His likeness, to Philippians where it talks about having the mind of Jesus Christ. We are all about becoming better becoming more spiritual. But what does that mean? 
What does becoming more spiritual mean? It means being righteous. And we become righteous because we follow the law and God's law. And God's law is so important to us that we will keep it. That is the link between the Holy Spirit and God's law. As Pastor said last week, we cannot be a Christian and not obey God's law. That doesn't. It, it, that's an anomaly. That doesn't. That doesn't happen. It, you can't say you're a Christian and not want to obey and not follow God's law. John chapter fifteen. We heard in the opening prayer, asking God to help us be a light to the world. How can we be a light to the world? How can we be the salt of the earth? How can we show the world that there is a better way of life? Let's see what Christ says in John chapter 15. Verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So we see this connection to Feast of Weeks. Feast of Pentecost with the first fruits, we see this. And our desire to bear fruit, to be more to be more spiritual. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Beautiful words of becoming more spiritual. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears